0: You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Sol Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Noreen Hanani. Noreen is a multiply neurodivergent registered dietitian with over 17 years of experience. She's the founder of RDs for Neurodiversity, a neurodiversity informed online continuing education platform for dietitians and helping professionals. Noreen also has her own private practice in Montreal, where she treats children, adults, and families struggling with various feeding and eating challenges through a trauma-informed, weight-inclusive, and anti-oppressive approach. I have been dying to have Noreen on the podcast for ages now. I would say we get a question at least once a week, if not more often, about how to navigate feeding challenges with neurodivergent kiddos, with neurodivergent parents, with a neurodiverse family where everybody's just coming at mealtime in slightly different ways and how that can create some challenges. This is a topic really close to my heart personally, but not a topic where I feel like I have a lot of lived experience and expertise. Noreen is the person we need for this conversation and I am delighted to be having it with her. So here's Noreen, but first a quick break. Okay, it is time to read another of your five star reviews. This one comes from Thistle Crown. Thistle Crown writes, What a relief! As a new parent, I had no idea how stressful feeding a child could be. I'm grateful for Burnt Toast and the massive perspective shift it's given me, both in regards to my own eating and food related habits and assumptions, which changed significantly after kids and my kids. It's helped challenge my assumptions on good and bad foods and expose diet culture in ways I never would have interrogated myself. I always feel a little sense of relief after listening to each episode. Highly recommend. Thank you, Thistle Crown. I love that you are feeling relieved. Listeners, if you are also feeling relieved or any kind of way, I would love for you to tell us about it in a review in your podcast player. They really help folks find the show, and I read the five-star ones, or really any ones that I like or want to talk about on the podcast. And if you want to do even more to support the show, consider a subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's only $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get all the essays straight to your inbox and a ton of other cool perks. Find out more by clicking the link in your episode description or going to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com.
1: So I am a uh, multiply neurodivergent person. I'm also a mom of two multiply neurodivergent kiddos. Both of my children have feeding differences.
0: And professionally, I'm a registered dietitian. Can you talk a little bit about why neurodivergent folks may have a hard time with eating? And how much of this is due to being neurodivergent? And how much of this is due to our culture's more neurotypical expectations around food and around mealtimes? Yeah, I love that question.
1: (laughs) That is something that I have been like exploring, you know, the last couple of years, like how much of this struggle or, or difference that's showing up is really related to the neurotypical expectations, right? Like who gets to define what is a problem and what isn't a problem and how do we even define all of that? it's really interesting because people of all neurotypes can have challenges when it comes to eating. We do see, however, that, you know, neurodivergent children in general will present with a lot more feeding differences compared to children who are developing more typically. And so what we often see is selective eating or what a lot of people call like picky eating and, you know, those types of feeding eating behaviors. Could be related to like sensory needs or the child's feeding ability, you know. And I think what harms neurodivergent children the most is neurotypical developmental milestones related to feeding and eating. So like the shoulds and like the expectations, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And this is something I know, like as a pediatric dietitian, like this is huge. Like I remember like talking to parents and saying things like, Yeah, well, you know, by 12 months, they should be able to eat like the rest of the family, and by 18 months. You know, they should be able to self-feed. And this is what we see in daycare schools, like these expectations that we have from children to develop a certain way. And when that doesn't happen, that's where a lot of parents struggle because, you know, parents are given like prescriptive advice, right? And so when there are differences that show up, it becomes really difficult to access support. And so I really see this as a difference and not necessarily a problem. And that's what I encountered also as a parent, right? When I was struggling to feed my family it was really difficult to find support like people didn't really fully understand what it is I was struggling with I didn't Mm -hmm. have the language and my Mm -hmm. children of course didn't have the language you know I think that it's definitely a bit of both but I really do think that like
0: these milestones can be quite you know damaging to children who
1: who were developing differently
0: I just love the language choices you're making there. I love how you're saying feeding difference instead of feeding problem. As someone with a kid with a lot of feeding differences, I <laughs> really resonates because It just is so negative. It can feel like a problem, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're Mm -hmm. really struggling. People are telling you that something's not okay. You know, there's all these reasons. It can feel like a problem. But to start to reframe it as a difference and not something you're blaming your kid for or that everybody's doing wrong, you were doing wrong, the kid's doing wrong, that alone feels like such a powerful reframing. Thank you.
1: I think that, you know, I know for me personally, it has made a huge difference. Right. And also, like the families that I work with, you know, feel very much affirmed by that type of language.
0: So, in terms of the expectations, I completely hear you on the milestones. My older daughter definitely did not eat like the rest of the family at 12 months or 18 months or anything. Mm -hmm. And we had to throw out that whole timeline. So I really relate to that piece of it. I also think a lot of these expectations that are on parents today really come from diet culture. Mm -hmm. So I thought we could talk a little bit about what rules or misconceptions from diet culture in particular, do you see getting weaponized against neurodivergent kids?
1: I think diet culture impacts all children in a a negative way. I think for Kids that are neurodivergent or disabled, I think for those children, I think it's particularly problematic because we know the diet culture is rooted in white supremacy and so is ableism. So then you've got like these two systems of oppression coming at you because a lot of the expectations, right, when we look at, you know, what diet culture pushes, right? not carbs. (laughs) Right. And so a lot of the kids I work with, you know, carbohydrates are like softer, easier to chew, easier to like, you know, Mm -hmm. easier to digest. And like, I think that a lot of the foods that show that kids who are more sensory sensitive gravitate towards are demonized by by diet culture, right? And so there are two pieces, like the ability piece where, you know, eating certain foods from a texture perspective and all of that and sensory perspective can be difficult because of feeding abilities. Kids that are choosing certain foods because they're easier to consume, often those foods, boxed foods, processed foods, packaged foods, all of those are demonized by diet culture. So I feel like it can become really, really messy And we, again, see also that, yes, neurodivergent children have more feeding differences, but then also when you look at the adult population, they're also more likely to develop eating disorders later on in life,
0: Mm. right? Yes. And how much of that might be rooted in the shaming they're experiencing Mm -hmm. around these food preferences and the foods that feel most accessible to them. Exactly. I think about this all the time, how much parents... The way we've been told to think about feeding our kids is just so often wildly out of line with how our kids want and can eat, you know, and that is true for neurotypical kids, too. I mean, it's just across Mm -hmm. the board, but you're right, that demonization of carbs, the demonization of processed foods, those two things, Mm -hmm. if we could get rid of them, would make everyone's Mm -hmm. lives so much easier when it comes to feeding kids. I think a diet culture version of feeding kids is— pushing vegetables really hard, you know, being anxious about carbs, all that kind of thing. And there's also the kind of like the clean plate stuff, like finish this before you can have this, those kinds of rules. And then the model we're given as the alternative to those rules is usually division of responsibility, the idea that parents are in charge of what foods are offered and when they're offered, and kids are in charge of whether they eat and how much they eat. And you and I have also talked about how that model doesn't always work for neurodivergent folks. So, would love to have you spell out a little bit of what you see as the limitations there as well. Yes. So, I mean, I think that DOR is something that can be
1: adapted, right? So, like, if we look at, for example, the parent's job, the what, when, and where, right? I find that if the parent isn't necessarily informed of how the child's developing, and if the idea here is to get the child to eat like the rest of the family and to appear as neurotypical as possible or whatever, right? Like, that's not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in my opinion, I think that's one of the reasons why, like, the DOR fails. I do think that the child's job in feeding in terms of, like, deciding, you know, whether or not the child wants to eat and the quantities, I think there's still a lot of value in there, right? But it's the what, when, and where that I feel like a lot of people, you know, struggle with because... A parent might think that the family meal table is the best place for the child to eat, but maybe it's not, right? And so I think this is where things get really, really messy where, you know, I have had to sometimes even separate, like, different family members because mm-hmm. it just doesn't feel safe or what the other members are eating. It's just so aversive from a sensory standpoint, the smell All the demands that come with like socializing when it comes to eating, some children, you know, don't have the capacity at the end of the day to be able to socialize and quote unquote behave well and sit down and all of that. So for some children, having like a little table on the side works better. Or it could be, you know, in front of screens even for some children that works better because that provides like self-regulation and some predictability instead of, you know, adding those social demands and all of that. So I think that the what and when and where we have to really look at the child's development, abilities, feeding abilities, preferences, all of that, and then make the right
0: decision, whatever that, you know, looks like. On the one hand, I hope what you're saying is sort of giving a lot of parents a moment of real relief and like giving themselves permission to think like, oh, I don't have to try to execute the family meal in this rigid way. I can make more of my own choices here, right? And, like, really meet my kid where they are as opposed to trying to drag my kid into the situation that's not Mm -hmm. working. But I imagine, too, you sometimes encounter folks who may have more of a knee-jerk, like, this is too permissive. How will they ever improve if we just, like, make it this, quote, easy for them? I'm sort of deliberately playing devil's advocate (laughs) there. This is not, I want to be clear, this is not how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. But I just... Have encountered that perspective. And I wonder if you have as well, and how do you talk through those sort of concerns?
1: I think that it's important to have these conversations because, again, it really goes back to how we view feeding and eating, right? And we live in a society that is so ableist. So we do internalize a lot of these ableist beliefs too. The way I see this, and this is part of the model that I've developed the neurodiversity farming model, which is an anti oppressive framework and methodology. But Basically, when we look at these changes that parents are making, we call them accommodations because Mm -hmm. that's what they really are, then it makes a lot more sense, right? So it's like Mm -hmm. saying that, well, why are we going to put a ramp? Like if we do that, wheelchair users will never walk. Like you would never see that. And so when we start thinking of eating in that same type of way, then it, it makes sense. Children want to learn. They, you know, naturally want to be like others and please their caregivers, but sometimes they just can't eat the way like the rest of the family does, right? So I think that these accommodations can be so supportive and they actually can help build a more safe relationship with the caregiver. And that leads to healthy attachment because you're Mm -hmm. meeting the child's needs. You're being responsive, right? So being responsive will not you know, spoil the child. Children will still be intrinsically motivated. If they see something interesting that they want to eat, they're going to take it. They're not going to not eat it because you're offering preferred foods with that
0: food. I also just think, you know, a lot of times when parents are having that reaction, we have to take a moment and say like, well, what we're trying to force here is not happening. The kid's not sitting at the dinner table or not eating the vegetables or whatever it is. So like, Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't we give this a shot as opposed to just continually trying to get this, you know, round peg in the square hole or whatever you want to use?
1: And, you know, it's interesting, Virginia, because a lot of parents are already implementing a lot of strategies on their own because parents are typically, in my opinion, quite attuned and they know what's happening. But they just feel a lot of shame and guilt. So, like, they'll Mm. share that we are doing this and I'm like, this is a brilliant strategy, but they feel so much guilt and they feel so shameful, you know, so sometimes it's really about how about maybe we remove some of that shame and guilt, yes. and, you know, like, how do we empower parents because they're the ones, you know, who are feeding their kids like all day long. I mean, providers can be helpful and supportive for sure. But I think that at the end of the day, we need to empower parents so they can make the right choice
0: without feeling all of that guilt and shame. Right. And without feeling like you're being graded. I had a mom reach out Mm -hmm. recently and she mentioned that they were doing a lot of meals in front of the TV right now Mm -hmm. because it's what's working. Mm -hmm. She was like, and I just think about how our meals look like from the outside. And I just Mm -hmm. thought like, who's looking in your windows at night, like at dinner time, though? Like Mm
1: -hmm. who is
0: on the outside that you're so worried is seeing this and judging you. And if that's someone in your life who loves you, that person, you know, is not being supportive. And if it's Mm -hmm the sort of amorphous, larger world of Instagram and culture and whatever, like, they're not invited to dinner, so it doesn't matter. So I would love to get into some practical strategies, and I've got a bunch of listener questions I've gathered that I thought we could go through. This one listener says, I would love any practical tips for making dinners more doable. My child often only sits for three to five minutes tops, and as soon as she's done, her younger sister's done too. So it's like the whole meal just kind of unravels at that Mm -hmm. point. Would a different chair or other physical support help her stay longer, or is it just not realistic at this time of day for dinner to last longer than five minutes? So definitely seating makes a really big difference. And so making
1: sure that you have a chair that supports the child, because often what ends up happening is that if the child is not well supported, a lot of like energy is going towards sitting down the core muscles and then you just don't have the capacity to engage in the fine mortar skills. And so I think the seating and sometimes that means that just having, again, like a, a smaller table, like a kiddie table with like, you know, smaller chairs works well too. Mm -hmm. And of course like expectations too, right? Like we don't necessarily want kids at that age to be at the table for like 30 minutes. Right. Right. That's way too long. Sometimes getting them to move a little bit can be helpful and provide a little bit of that input, you know, because sometimes sitting down can be difficult for some children. So there are weighted objects that can be placed on the lap that can be supportive, or like mm-hmm. even like you know if the child needs to like maybe fidget. I think it's really about looking at like how do we support this kiddo to make sure that the kid is like comfortable. I'm not saying this is the case, but, like, this is just something that I thought about. A lot of people with misophonia, so they have, like, these very strong reactions when you hear other people chewing or yawning. Later on, we find out, like, why this particular kid was, like, running away constantly. There's something there that's bothering them. So the first thing is chair seating, all of that, and that's adjusted and the child's still escaping well, it's because they're telling us something. Something's Mm -hmm. going on, right? And so then we have to see, okay, well, what can we do to make this more comfortable, right? And what type of accommodations we need.
0: I'm also just thinking too, you know, for kids, and I don't know if this is that letter writer's perspective, but for kids who have had a hard time with eating and Mm -hmm. feeding dynamics, the dinner table can just be this thing, right? It can just Mm -hmm. be this trigger. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: The fight or flight response. So if there has been trauma or a lot of pressure or, or it could be other factors that we don't necessarily think about, you know, if there are sensory differences, like the smell of the food of what others are eating and all of that. I really think like the child's behavior is telling us a story and then we need to figure out like, what does this really mean? You know, because I yeah. feel like children don't just behave a certain way, like for no reason. Like there's always a reason, you know? Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. This next question is about an adult child, which I think is interesting. We've been sort of so far talking, I think, a little bit more about younger kiddos. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts here. This person writes, my daughter is 23 and living with us is autistic and ADHD. She's not intellectually disabled, but I'd say her emotional maturity lags by a good bit. She's very impulsive and she also takes medications that affect appetite and has since she was five. It complicates so much about decision making and hunger and eating. When I say impulsive, As a kid, she could be sick and throw up and immediately want a milkshake and not understand why that might not be a good idea. I am pretty sure this still holds true at 23. The hyperactivity is 24-7, so it's her nature to wake up, walk around, eat a banana in the middle of the night, forage for breakfast number one at 5 a.m., etc., and then have another breakfast once I'm up. Then the meds kick in and hunger is backburnered until 5 when it roars back with urgency. I try to be weight neutral. She and I are both in bigger bodies. She's mostly comfortable in herself, much more than most young women, I think, although every now and then I hear a I'm fat type of comment. I'm often lost in the quandary of what boundaries are okay to set and what's really not. I often say, "Are you sure you're still hungry? Can you wait ten minutes? And if you're hungry, come back and find something." Or, "Hmm, I think you already had two breakfasts. Are you really hungry?" Mm-hmm. And sometimes, of course, as the human mom running the kitchen, I'm just frustrated in how can you be hungry? But that's probably unfair. Yeah, a lot going on in that question. I think that you know we have to
1: be careful because when it comes to neurodivergence, often neurodivergent people are more likely to get infantilized, because 23 is an adult, right, with Mm -hmm. or without cognitive impairment. If we want to generalize a little bit, children sometimes also have these behaviors, right, where they'll go and eat, and you feel like maybe it's not the time to eat. And in this case, it seems like this person maybe has an eating pattern that would be considered quote-unquote typical, Mm -hmm. right? And so most people, when we eat, we eat for different reasons, right? Sometimes it's related to like physical hunger, but it could also be to cope with certain emotions. It could also be for stimming because it provides certain, you know, um, sensory input, stimulation, Mm -hmm. self-regulation, like all of that, right? So it is important to acknowledge that, you know, whatever is going on, there is again, a reason behind this, right? And there's a purpose and it's not just for nothing. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I would really look at, well, what does the day look like? Aside from eating, like what else is happening? Because let's say if it is to like provide sensory input or like stimulation or coping, sometimes mornings are really difficult for a lot of like neurodivergent kids, like the routine. And like, if let's say this particular person has to go out, I don't know, work, school, whatever the routine looks like, when there's a lot of stress, sometimes mm. we want to a little something to like soothe us. And so I wonder sure. if maybe the mornings are maybe a little bit maybe stressful. Um It could also be related to interoception where some people need to eat frequently throughout the day because the early satiety, those signals are sometimes uncomfortable or maybe even painful. And so some mm-hmm. children will eat more frequently and that this is where, you know, you see that they're grazing like all, Day, and even adults, we see that in adults too, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, I see a lot of adults that will just, you know, kind of have a lot of different small type of meals instead mm-hmm. of sitting down. Because again, sitting down, eating a big meal can be understimulating as well. Some even call it boring. Like this is so boring. Mm. Like, you know. My kids so definitely
0: I, say that one. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Another thing I find that shows up is You know, even for people like who are totally on board with weight neutrality and size diversity, sometimes, you know, we can also as parents struggle with internalized fat Mm -hmm. phobia, right? Mm -hmm. So I see these concerns, right, that a lot of parents have. And parents who have like children in more like smaller bodies often don't have these type of concerns, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. So it's like often I'll hear things like, oh, you know, he eats like all day but he has like a good metabolism you mm. know and it's like no concerns right, right. so i think and th- and i have a lot of compassion for parents who are in larger bodies and have children in larger bodies because it is violent our, our culture is so terrible right and so you want to protect your kids and you want to make sure but you know they are accepted and all of that so i think sometimes that shows up too because i do see often a difference in how parents
0: will, you know, treat children who are in larger bodies versus smaller bodies Mm -hmm. when it comes to this type of eating pattern. I'm just realizing when I read her question, my screen cut off the last line of the email, Mm -hmm. which she did also write, and the idea of not limiting sweets is blowing my mind trying to relax around that one, Mm -hmm. which I also have a lot of compassion for. That's such a a message Mm -hmm. that's drilled into us for so long. But I think you're completely right here that some of this anxiety about this adult child's eating patterns is probably rooted in some of this weight and diet culture stuff, as much as it is also like confusing and sort of maybe discombobulating to the mom to have a kid who's you know, not eating during the day and wanting multiple breakfasts. It sounds like Mm -hmm. there's the adult child's schedule is not lining up with what the parent wants their schedule to be. Absolutely. So there's that conflict, which is hard, especially as you are two adults living together now. But then there's this added layer of maybe this parent is worrying that the adult child's eating schedule is the reason for their body. And we need to disconnect that. Absolutely. And I think in this case, medications are
1: involved. So what happens is meds really, depending on the medication, will impact appetite and Mm so the person may not feel super hungry and then when the meds wear off I see this all the time in my practice where you know parents think that okay well my kid is binging I'm like no this is just a natural response because they weren't really (laughs) they didn't eat for 10 hours (laughs) they, they couldn't eat you know enough because the meds were really impacting the appetite like they eat smaller amounts and then at some point they need to make up all that so the fact that it's happening a lot in the morning tells me that maybe that's this is maybe before the medication and there is more appetite so bodies are are brilliant really
0: (laughs) yeah it's really like a really smart strategy of this person that they're eating a lot in the morning before Mm -hmm. the meds kick in Mm -hmm. so they have fuel to get through that long stretch when they won't have appetite Mm -hmm. like that's you're right it's just a brilliant strategy it really is and maybe just making some space for like this is what she needs to get through her day then and Mm -hmm. then yes at 5 p.m she's going to be really hungry when the meds wear off again but that's not a Like a problem unless we label it a problem. Yes.
1: No, absolutely. It's a strategy. And like I work with families where, you know, their kids will have like two or sometimes three suppers after dinner Mm. because they really are not eating much during the day
0: because of the medication
1: and all the other factors.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. All right. Another listener question. This person writes, Recently, I've found myself resorting to cajoling bites from my child. Age five uses they, them pronouns. They become so absorbed in play that they forget to eat or reject the suggestion that it's time for snack, I suspect ADHD. Sometimes hours later, they'll completely collapse into meltdowns lasting 20 to 40 minutes. I'll sit there begging them to just eat the snack because I know it will make them feel better, but they always refuse my initial offers. At meals, they'll often only nibble on things, three bites from a happy meal before declaring I'm full and playing with the toy. Now I find myself resorting to take three bites. As my child retorts, I know my body and I'm not hungry. Love that Mm -hmm. kid. (laughs) (laughs) This person also mentions what they call ADHD time blindness and being absorbed in tasks also makes me forget to eat. But I've been working on that more lately. How can I improve things for my kiddo? I'm worried about them not eating lunch at kindergarten. So this is a parent sort of aware of their own neurodivergent patterns and also seeing this replicated in their child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yes, things can get quite messy when there are multiple neurodivergent people because like you want to make sure your kid eats and it's a schedule and routine and remembering all of that, it can be hard. And so when it's time to eat and when kids don't eat, when it's time to eat can be quite stressful because like, okay, now I have to remember to feed then maybe offer something else, maybe 30 minutes later. It really increases, like, um, the executive functioning, like, load. It's tricky, you know, because, like, there could be so many reasons why this type of behavior is, like, showing up. And for some children asking them would you like this or that like it creates a demand Mm -hmm. kids who are more demand avoidant or have demand anxiety and so sometimes like leaving the food in the environment and I know it's like totally going against your DOR again (laughs) but like just kind of like very casually just just leaving it in the environment can be helpful right so the important thing here is like we're giving opportunities to kids to eat, you know, frequent opportunities, right, to nourish their bodies. And sometimes that could be like, okay, we'll, we'll read a book or we'll, you know, do something that doesn't require a whole lot of focus and then have snack in the environment and you're just kind of eating and just engaging in that, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And for some kids, that works really well because they'll say no because it's a demand. Um, they don't want to be forced into this like snack time because they're busy doing something else. But then sure. if you... Pair it with another activity that doesn't require a whole lot of focus because then basically it's going to be too distracting and then you'll forget about like the snack, you
0: know? Right. They're getting so absorbed and so play. absorbed. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that
1: depends. Like, you know, it varies from child to child, but this is where we have to like think about like more creative strategies, right? And, you know, I love that <laughs> this this kid is like, for me. Like, no, you know, I know. <laughs> I know my body. <laughs> I know and my
0: body. <laughs> we love um, the body autonomy. I love amazing. it. I yes. love it. Uh, but
1: yeah, sometimes it's really about, you know, creativity and letting them lead. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, again, you know, some children won't eat because it becomes a demand. So we have to find creative ways.
0: Right. Right. That's really interesting. Thinking about how to sort of make food available I'm also wondering about like having a snack cabinet or a snack drawer Mm -hmm. that the kid can Mm -hmm. access on their own Mm -hmm. and again this might lead to a grazing pattern that feels Mm -hmm. anti what you've been told Mm -hmm. but if it lets them engage a little more directly yes with feeding themselves and like that might help with starting to hear some of those cues too right absolutely all right and then this next question oh, this is another person who's been burned by division of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, They write, the strategies you often write and talk about, meaning me, don't work for us, especially division of responsibility. My son is eight years old and has ADHD. He takes Ritalin, which suppresses his appetite so he doesn't get reliable hunger or satiety cues. I would like to understand how to develop body trust when you have a body and brain that you can't always trust because of medication and because it struggles with self-regulation, impulse control, distractibility etc how much can we expect our kiddos to get this and how do we help them with it especially since impulsivity is also such a thing and i don't want to demonize or pathologize impulses either
1: there's this misconception that we can't trust
0: neurodivergent
1: children when it comes to their bodies food all of that and it's because we are looking at like neurotypical ways of eating and showing up in this world and then we're comparing you know neurodivergent children and so I think that you know in this case again when there are medications that are involved typically children will eat a lot more food before taking the medication and then after the medication wears off and that is totally fine so mm-hmm. I'm really curious about what the eating pattern looks like and what is it telling us, right? Mm. And often, you know, when it comes to impulsivity, it's very interesting because Shira Collings, um, one of my friend and therapists, wrote a blog on this topic against impulsivity and if it really talks about impulsivity. The behavior that we're seeing is a result of unmet needs. So again, like behaviors that we see typically you know, there is a meaning behind that, right? I'm just going to, like, make some assumptions here. Sometimes I'll see parents, you know, say things like, oh, my kid is so, like, impulsive when it comes to, like, you know, eating sweets or sugars or certain foods. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, well... I would be like that, too, if I wasn't allowed to eat sweets and like all the foods that I enjoy. You know, I wouldn't leave the sweet table either. So I think often it has to do with like some type of restriction or unmet needs. So I think that really, again, approaching it with a lot of compassion and curiosity and like how these behaviors are actually serving
0: this kiddo and understanding the story can be really, really valuable. I can really understand where the parent is with the sort of initial perception of what the behavior Mm -hmm. looks like. But I love this idea of reframing it as like as a strategy, as Mm -hmm. a way of expressing a need. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about this medication piece of it, which I had not really considered before. And I'm just curious, like, do you often see a lot of kids on these medications, like basically not eating lunch at school, Mm -hmm. like not Mm -hmm. really able? And I'm sure that's worry some to parents as well because you're thinking like my kid's going all day and they're not getting lunch and you know so yeah do you have any strategies for I mean is it just focusing on like trying to get a big breakfast in before you go I mean there's so much we can do and again depends on you know the child and like accommodations really
1: have to be like client-centered right Mm -hmm. so for some kids during the day like they can't eat all that much because the medication is suppressing their appetite. But they're okay, like, drinking chocolate milk. And so I'm like, let's pack three of those, please. (laughs) And, you know, we're going to try and get in some nourishment that way. So it really, it's about being creative. So when it comes to certain, like, more palatable, you know, foods that bring a lot of joy and pleasure, those are Mm. easier to consume, right? And we're Mm. like that too, right? Like, sometimes we'll, eat a meal and it's like you're full but then you see the dessert and you're like wow I'd love to have a piece of that you know so I think sometimes it's about that too like okay so this is how you feel but like what are some foods that might be like interesting or easier to Mm -hmm. like take in and so for some kids that can work really well you know liquids or you know more like snack type of foods Mm -hmm. right so not necessarily like you know, pasta and a thermos, but maybe like some cheese crackers and mm-hmm. a little bit of fruit or something and that might work,
0: right? I was going to ask about like, does like crunchy foods or foods that give a lot of like oral feedback help ever. If that is what the
1: child is into, yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Like we all have like different sensory profiles. So yeah, if right. that works well, great. So it's really, you know, about being creative and then giving more opportunities before and then after. So that's where... You know, I feel like we see parents, you know, that are concerned, like, well, you know, my kiddo just ate dinner and like 30 minutes later, they're, they're hungry again. Mm-hmm. And so what do I do? And I'm like, well, if they're hungry, it's because they are hungry. Like, you right. know, let's, let's offer more opportunities, right? So the pattern ends up looking different. And sometimes it looks very different. And it doesn't align with how
0: the rest of the family members are eating. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. And that's totally okay. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense that these are kids who probably need a good bedtime snack. When we're talking about these kids who, at least from the parent's perspective, don't seem like they have strong hunger and satiety cues or, you know, medication is a factor and is suppressing those cues. How do you talk to the kids about that? Is there language that's helpful to a child to start to help them tune into that? I'm very careful about, like, teaching children hunger fullness,
1: like that's something that I'm actually quite uncomfortable with. Yeah. So I think that, you know, with time, people, children, as they get older, they see how other people are eating and what eating looks like for others. I think that they make connections, you know, they are very aware. What happens is when we start, you know, telling kids that they can't feel fullness or they can't feel hunger We can run into a lot of trouble right because Mm -hmm. what happens is hunger and fullness right how it shows up in the body can look different for different people depending on interoception, right so for some kids you know parents will say things like oh my kid doesn't say that they're hungry and then they have a meltdown i'm like what else happens before that Mm. right like those are the the signals that we should be looking at so for some adults again of course children don't necessarily have the language at that time so we don't want to hyper focus on like hunger should be felt in the stomach and this is what Mm -hmm. your tummy is telling you because for a lot of people that's not where they will feel it right they will not feel it there they will feel it and can't focus have a bit of a headache not feeling super good Mm, i'm thinking about food or there are other ways right and Mm -hmm. that looks so different so we can't really teach that yeah right we cannot because you don't know what their
0: experience is we don't know
1: right and it's so interesting because like people will tell me things like, you know, adults that do have this language, I don't feel hunger, I don't feel fullness. And then like, a few months later, they are so aware of their eating experience. They're Like, yeah, you know, I can actually do my homework. And I don't feel tired. You know, I'm in a better mood. I'm like, these are your signals. Right?
0: right. This is what's happening inside your body. So, yeah. So it's less about trying to teach them like language for like oh when you feel this in your stomach you're Mm -hmm. hungry because that may not be accurate. I
1: think structure can be valuable. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that having a flexible structure and teaching children that, you know, we can develop a flexible structure where there are multiple opportunities to feed the body can be super valuable. And that's Mm -hmm. the work I do with adults too where I don't feel hungry. Like okay, well let's see, you know what happens In your body, when we start feeding it every couple of hours, oh, wow, I feel different. (laughs) Okay, you know, do you like that feeling? Yes, I do. Okay, let's keep doing
0: this, (laughs)
1: right? Got it. (laughs) So it's really really about, like, helping them, giving them that structure so they can take care of their bodies, right?
0: And then we don't know what's going to happen, right? Right. And I think, too, a big part of this must also be accepting that, It's not going to look like what you, the parent, are expecting it's going to look like. Like, it's Mm going to change. Kids Mm -hmm. are changing all the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I think that is one of the most exhausting parts of feeding your family often is that realization of, like, this dinner that was working so well a month ago, now everyone hates it. Everyone hates it. This (laughs) dinner time that we had picked Mm -hmm. based on our schedules. Mm -hmm. Actually, the kids are hungry an hour earlier. Yes. Not till an hour later or whatever, you know. Yeah, And you're kind of constantly pivoting in that way, which can be exhausting. It can be. Absolutely. (laughs) But it is also useful data. The last question that I wanted to end the section on, is: I just really love this question, this person writes, what do you think our priorities should be in terms of helping neurodivergent kids with meals? What matters most to help them build and maintain healthy relationships with food? honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind is validation, right? That their
1: experiences are real, whatever it is, like they are experiencing has meaning, right? You know, I can share a little bit of my own personal experience here as a mother who doesn't have feeding differences, right? Supporting children who do, like I really had to learn to kind of like normalize their experiences, because I'm was probably like them when I was younger, but over time, like things changed, right? So I remember like my daughter having these very unique experiences with food and then I would totally validate that, right? Like, you're right. If you're saying that this doesn't feel good, then that's okay. Like that experience is, is real and we're going to figure something out. Like if you mm-hmm. don't want those little pieces of whatever it is in your rice, we're going to take that out. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to say... You know you're being too difficult, or you know your brother is eating them, right? So like really offering validation and normalizing whatever it is that is coming up, right? I have one kiddo who's like spices, another one who doesn't like spices. I often have to like accommodate and like modify my recipes. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work for me as a neurodivergent parent because like you know (laughs) it's a lot. And at the same time, you know I also want them to feel like their bodies are not broken right? That these experiences are their experiences and that, you know, they have the right to be able to find joy and pleasure in food, right? And I don't get to define what's pleasurable, right? Like they get to define that for themselves. And that is what I
0: think is super important. Yeah. Yeah. Empowering them to have these experiences and to know that their experiences are real and valid. That's, yes, feels like everything. Well, Noreen, we wrap up every podcast episode with my Butter for Burnt Toast segment. This is just like a fun recommendation segment where we each give a recommendation of something we've been loving. So I'd love to know what you would like to recommend. Well, I am in Montreal and uh, the
1: fall weather here has been just fantastic. So I've just been, you know, spending a lot of time outdoors and just admiring the beautiful leaves, the colors, and that's what I have been doing the last (laughs) it's
0: just so nice it's so nice yeah every year I think of myself as someone who doesn't like fall because I'm really someone who doesn't like winter yeah and so I get a little sad at the end of summer because it means winter's coming and then every year I'm like oh wait fall's great it's It's beautiful (laughs) yeah it it really (laughs) is magic and I grew up in New England like I've Mm -hmm. I've experienced falls for 41 years and I don't know why every year I'm like oh it's beautiful it Agree, agree. Well, my recommendation is a book I just read actually over the weekend while I was on a little like admiring Pretty Fall Leaves weekend <laughs> away from my kids. It was great with my husband. And I read the book, The Heart Principle, by I'm gonna mispronounce her last name, Helen Hong, H-O-A-N-G. It's a really delightful romance novel, and it is about the experience of a neurodivergent woman. She's actually a violin player, and she's, like, gone through a sort of traumatic experience with her violin playing and her relationship to music. And it is a romance. There's, like, a delightful romance plot, but it's also her starting to understand her identity as an autistic person and Mm -hmm. have to come out to her family. And there's a lot of complicated dynamics. She's a Chinese immigrant. I saw the title The Heart Principle. I thought it was going to be a fun romance novel. And it absolutely was. And I was also sobbing, you know, like the story of this woman's experience Mm. was so beautifully done. And the author is herself autistic. So it's very much grounded in her own experiences. And yeah, I just loved it. It was much more than I had expected um, from the very cute cover and delightful in many ways. So that's my recommendation. So, Noreen, thank you so much for being here. Tell listeners where they can follow you and how we can support your work.
1: Yes. So, I have two social media accounts. So, for parents, I have an account. It's Noreen Hanani Nutrition and on Instagram and Facebook. And then for providers,
0: it's RDs for Neurodiversity. Amazing. We will send everyone there. Thank you again for being here. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you would like to support the show, once again, make sure you are subscribed. That's virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. You can also click the link in your episode description. Make sure also that you are subscribed for free in your podcast player. This is a great episode to share with a friend if you have a fellow parent or person in your life who is navigating some of these challenges. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at V underscore Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Bird toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.